Good evening, dear friends and fellow travelers to eternity. It's a joy for us to be together tonight in the cause that assembles us, of serving our Heavenly Father and worshiping Him tonight in spirit and in truth. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to get to be with Tony. You know, it's wonderful when you have the privilege to do like we have and to live a while. You enjoy years, and then over the years you can reflect back on those times and still continue to enjoy yourself. It makes for a rich life. I'm so thankful to have known Tony and for us to get to be together again. I appreciate the opportunity very much. So many here tonight that we have known across the years. We appreciate you coming out to be with us. I'm glad to have Brother Charles Jarrett with us tonight. Dr. Jarrett was an elder in Memphis at the Greg Avenue Congregation where I preached for 12 or 13 years. About wore both my sermons out while I was there. But uh, Dr. Jarrett's always been a great friend. On uh, one year at Vacation Bible School, and Greg Avenue is known for terrific vacation Bible schools. I'll tell this, Charles, and you can have a rebuttal if you'd like. He was speaking on tobacco use and how it's damaging to the body. And he had an outstanding lesson being a medical doctor is coming from that biblical and medical perspective. And he had a picture, a cartoon up he was showing of dinosaurs. And it was giving the reason that the dinosaurs went extinct. You know, it was tobacco. And a fellow got up and started walking out the back. And he said, see, there goes a guy right now that couldn't sit through a lecture like this without having a cigarette. And I noticed a guy wasn't smiling. And Charles went on back into his lesson. And I snuck out in the foyer and I said, Hey, are you all right? And he said, he made me mad. I said, what do you make you mad about? He said, i got to have a cigarette. <laughs> I said, he didn't mean to make you mad. Man, come on back in here. So we got him back in. You want a rebuttal, Charles? He, he, that's one. I got, he's got a million he can tell about me. Do what? It's true. It's, yeah, it's true. It's a fact. <laughs> but it's a joy to get to be together tonight. This evening what I'd like to do is for us to study a lesson on the arc of safety. Of course, much of the material is not original with me on these lessons. If you see anything creative or anything that looks really sharp or smart, you know, that's the part that did not come from me. But this lesson on the arc of safety is one that is a basic lesson that all of us want to be mindful of. A young Christian could certainly utilize this, and a person who's not a member of the church tonight could really benefit from a study of this lesson on the arc of safety. The text comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Through 22. I'd like for you, if you have your Bible, to open your Bible and take a look at that because we want to read the text tonight. 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse 20, Peter says, Which sometime were disobedient, and once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is set on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities, angels, principalities, or rather angels, authorities, and powers being made subject unto him. This is the text we want to examine because of a number of the teachings that are in it that relate to the ark of safety. I'd like to begin by noting something in this text. And I'm glad that Charles Jarrett is here because I always had a kind of a struggle in my mind about the use of type and antitype until one time in Bible class. And I love teaching Bible classes. I always learn as much or more as anybody there. And Charles brought out an illustration that I've always appreciated since because it really clarifies type and antitype. Do you know in studying the Bible that there are in the Old Testament some types that are reflected in the New Testament. And there are certain characteristics of those types that are related to their 
antitype or corresponding type over in the New Testament. And I always couldn't figure out, you know, which one's the type, which one's the antitype. And Charles explained in class, you've seen how a printer would do. You would take these little blocks that have letters on them and they're all backwards and you put them in a box and a printer can put those in there and all of the type, that is the type. He is a type setter. He sets those out there, inks that, lays a piece of paper on it, and when he lifts the paper, it reflects the type. It is the type and the paper is the antitype, the corresponding type. That's how closely type and antitype are related. In our text, when Peter says, the like figure, that's the Greek word antitupos, anti-type. So what we're going to be looking at tonight in the Ark of Safety is going to find the Ark of Noah as a type and the Church of Christ as the antitype. These two things are going to mirror certain crucial aspects that will help us not only appreciate the Ark of Noah, but also it will help us have an insight into the Church of Christ tonight. So that lesson on type and antitype, as I was driving over, I thought about that in Charles' illustration, and uh, that's something that always stuck with me. Now, he was my doctor too, and he told me what I need to eat and how I need to lose weight, and I didn't listen to that part, but the biblical things, now I held on to that, <laughs> as you can see. So let's take notice of what we have here with the Ark of Noah. You know, the Ark is mentioned in other places in the New Testament. Our Lord will refer to the Ark of Noah in Matthew 24. There he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, basically the first half of that chapter, down to verse 34. Then he's talking about the end of the world. And he gives this illustration. And for any who've read the Bible and know anything about the Bible at all, you've been impressed with the lesson about Noah's Ark. And so Jesus utilized that in preparing people for the end of time. He wrote or said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So you see what Jesus is doing is he's going to draw some parallels between Noah's Ark and the coming of the Son of Man, that is the second coming. For example, For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and giving in, mar in marriage, and marrying rather, and giving in marriage, until that day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I want to stop right there. I've got something else I want to say about this, but I want you to notice this. When we began our meeting, we were talking about preparing to meet our God. We have preparations to make. And it's always helpful for us to know the manner in which the Son of God comes. He's going to come in the same manner in which the floodwaters of Noah's day came in upon the earth. Now, you've got that from Jesus. And I think it's time we set aside some of the speculations of people in talking about Christ coming back to the earth to set up some sort of a kingdom here. His kingdom is the church, Matthew 16, 18. And some people want to deceive you about that so that you think, look, I've got plenty of time. When I see all of those political arrangements that I read about in the late great planet earth coming to pass, well, I can know that the end of time is near and I can have time to straighten up my life. You cannot because it's not going to end like that. When he says, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be, he means that the end of the world will happen just like the flood of Noah. It's going to come when they're eating and drinking, when they are marrying and giving in marriage, that is when they're going about the daily activities of their life, as if there's no end in sight. 
That's the way the Lord is going to return. That's why whatever it is that we're doing now, we need to be making preparation for the Lord to return because now is the only time that we do have to make such preparations. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Now. Not something that can be put off next week. You know, I was really impressed in the gospel meeting about some basic truths, and I'm going to be baptized Sunday. You don't know you've got Sunday. Some people are looking further past that. i got a few things I want to clear up in my life, and I'm going to start attending the services of the church later on. You don't know you have later on. You have now. Noah would be trying to persuade the people of his day in similar fashion to repent. And you see that only eight souls were saved in his day. Well, I wanted to show you these passages of Scripture because here you will see the ark is utilized in the New Testament and Jesus is teaching as well as in Peter's that we're looking at. Something else I want to mention while this picture is on the board is sometimes people say, well, now, in Noah's day, they were saved by staying out of the water. And today we can be saved without baptism. No, you'll notice they were saved by what? Water. How were the people of Noah's day saved by water? What you have pictured here, I think the artist is trying to show you, people who are seeing those in the ark of safety. And oh, how they're longing to be there. Notice they're going to the high points, trying to avoid the flood, because destruction is imminent. And they know that they are going to have nothing to cling to in this world. The world was exceeding wicked, Genesis 6-5, and that's why it was destroyed. And so the water separated the wickedness of the world, like this old boy standing here in the foreground, from those who were saved in the ark. The water was a separation from righteousness, from unrighteousness. Baptism is that same separation today. That's why Peter says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. It separates us from wickedness and brings us into a state of righteousness in the sight of God. So I want to mention that while that picture is up there. Let's talk about the ark of safety. Again, as you see in the background for this, the type, let's go back there to Noah's day and notice those points that correspond to the antitype today. In the first place, I'd like for you to notice that in Genesis, the sixth chapter, every thought and imagination of man was only evil continually, and it repented the Lord that he had made man. And the Lord said that he would not always strive with man, but his years shall be a hundred and twenty years. Noah, during this period of time, is a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2, 5. What's Noah doing? Well, he's building an ark. What's Noah doing? He is preaching. He is letting the people know about the danger in which they're living and urging them to change their life. They're not doing it. Now, those who are entering into the ark are the ones who have believed the Word of God. Hebrews 11, by faith Noah, being moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house. Here in Genesis chapter 7, in verse 1, The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee I have seen righteous before me in this generation. If you'll notice then the description that follows after Genesis chapter 7, in verse 1, telling about them coming in and the flood of waters about to, about to be upon the earth and the animals that were being brought into the ark. Down in verse 16, the Bible says, And they went in, they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh as God had commanded him. And I think this next phrase is very important. I think it goes to the type and antitype directly. And the Lord shut him in. 
Well, why do you think that goes to the type and anti-type discussion so easily? I think so because in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, we learn about our Lord Jesus Christ. We learn that he has the key of David. And then Jesus says what that means is that he openeth and no man shutteth. He shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. I think the door here is the door of opportunity. Once the Lord shut that door, it was shut. I don't know if Lamech is knocking on the door. Noah, now you know, we haven't really been standing with you all this time, but our minds are changed, and we want in. Wouldn't you do that? I sure would. The Lord shut the door. It wasn't up to Noah to open that door. The Lord had done the shutting. And later the Lord will do the opening. Man didn't shut that door. God closed that door of opportunity forever on the people of the antediluvian world. And they perished in that flood. In John chapter 10, in verse 9, our Lord makes the statement that He is the door. Again, I think he's talking about the door of opportunity for one's eternal salvation. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. You'll notice in the text of Scripture, Jesus is the door. The door speaks to you. He allows that opportunity to you in words. You don't think a door will speak to you? I almost had this experience tonight when we were coming in. The door out here was locked. I go pushing on it. Oh, the door is locked. Sometimes a door will have on there, pull. Is the door speaking to you? It says pull. You just go up there and try to push on it. Oh, oh well, it says pull. The door just spoke to you. It'll let you in if you'll listen to what it's saying. Jesus is the door. And he speaks to us through his word. Friends, he has the key of David. He opens and no man shuts. And when he shuts, no man opens. That's why we're always urging us not to be followers of the teachings and doctrines and commandments of men. They do not have the authority to open the door of salvation to you. And when the Lord has shut the door, no man can open it. When He's opened it, no man can take that away from you. The Lord has opened the door of opportunity tonight for you to enter the ark of safety, the church of Christ. Don't you let any man shut that for you. The Lord's the one who's got it open. So I think they're in... Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16, it's interesting to notice that it was the Lord who shut the door. The Lord is certainly the one in charge and in control. Now after the flood of waters had subsided, please note this. This is verse 15 and 16 of Genesis 8. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons, and thy sons' wives with thee. So God told them to come into the ark, and he shut the door. God told them to go out of the ark. And they went out. What I'd like for you to notice just now, and the reason I put these two verses here like I have, is please observe the perspective. I have this arrow pointing to the word, Come. Come thou and all thy house into the ark. Let me ask you a question. When the world is about to be destroyed, and the God of salvation had caused Noah to prepare an ark to the saving of his house, where was God? According to this text, where was God? The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. God is in 
the ark. Look when they go out. Next passage. God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth out of the ark. God is in the ark of safety. Thus the come and the go. That's not accidental. That's a matter of type. And we're going to see the corresponding antitype, the ark of Noah and the church of Christ. God is in the church. The body of Christ is the church of Christ. And the saved are in Christ. There is your type and antitype. I just want you to notice that safety is with God. And we need to know where to find God. Noah knew because he listened to the Word of God. And we will know today, if we listen to the Word of God, how to find God and be where He is. So I just want to notice that particular point there by way of perspective and observation with you. Now let's look a little bit further here at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. Which sometime were disobedience when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. What we saw in Genesis 6, that was a period of some 120 years. God was suffering long with the people, allowing them opportunity to repent and to return. You know, when you sit and think about that, the Bible says meditate on these things in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 15. And when you sit down and think about things like these, it allows your mind to just really run, to think about how long-suffering God is. I can't even conceive the number. You know, we talk about our nation's national debt and talk about $16.5 trillion. I don't have a clue how much that is. That's such a large number. I think part of our problem is we cannot relate to the number. There are 7 billion souls in this world. The church has the mission to take the gospel to all the world, Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. The church has actually been charged with that commission. That's why it's the great commission and it's never been greater than it is tonight. To take that gospel message to the world. And yet, as we all know and we're impressed with, if you glimpse at the newspaper, the news, sometimes I just cannot do it. I just am not able to, to do that. Sometimes I see it. You can't hardly avoid it. All of the pain and heartache that's in this world, and so much of it attributed to the fact of simply ungodly behavior. And God is suffering long with it. When we talk about the long suffering of God, I think the lesson we need to take from that is we need to take as many people out of this old wicked world as we can, like Noah was doing. Because God is suffering long, but He is going to punish the wicked. He's angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7 and 11. They're standing in line for the punishment of God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 9. Why doesn't He do it? It's not because He's not able. It's because He's a loving God. And he has the ability to suffer long. Wednesday night I want to talk to you about some things that you'd be surprised that God does. Things you wouldn't think God does. Because if it were you or if it were me, I don't think we have the ability to suffer long as God does. I don't think we'd have put up with it as long as God has. But he's more loving than we are and merciful and long-suffering. And I'm thankful that he is, but wouldn't any of us be Christians? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and 23. Notice that the long suffering of God is waiting in the days of Noah while the ark is a preparing. Wherein few. Surely we have thought about the word few there. 
Few in the crossing of the River Jordan into the Promised Land consisted of Joshua and Caleb. Two, not counting the Levites 20 years old and above, uh, who were able to cross the, the Levites and those 20 years old and above uh, or below that were not in the numbering. Two. Here in the flood of Noah, eight. How many people were alive in the world at that time? I don't know. Some people who are smart have said it could have been into the millions of people in the world in the days of Noah by that point in time. People lived longer. They were procreating. Could have been a much a high number. But only eight of them were saved. How many is going to be saved today? Will it be 10 million on this planet right now out of the 7 billion? If it was 100 million, that would still be a fraction. The best reports that we have from all of the news reporting that we have out of India, Africa, and the United States, and other places, the numbers, 13 million, 10 million, below that. In comparison, it is infinitesimal. Few means few. Then he says our word, the like figure whereunto to even baptism doth also now save us. Here then you've got a type, the flood of Noah, and an antitype, baptism. This word is an interesting word in the original. When we were studying Greek over at Fried Hardeman, we came across this word, and it instantly mesmerizes to see this word. Here I've got the word I think I can put up here, yes. Epirotema. You know as much about it as I do now looking at that word. This is an interesting word because in Vines, you know, when he defines this word, he says this word is used in a legal sense to be a basis for an appeal. Now, if you've just been sentenced to death and your smart lawyer told you, well, we lost the case, but I think we have a basis for an appeal, would you be proud to hear that? Well, you know you would. You'd be grabbing at a straw. Yeah, I have a basis for an appeal. Well, when we have sinned, what comes with sin? Death, Romans 6.23. But now we have a basis of appeal. What is it? This word answer is talking about baptism, is that basis of appeal that we have. And that's from W.E. Vines. Joseph Henry Thayer, on page 230 and 231 of his book, talks about it as an inquiry and a question. The question is the conscience. How can I be right in the sight of God is the question. In speaking about this, he says that it is an earnest seeking, a craving, an intense desire. I'm sure one of the reasons most people are going to be lost tonight is they just don't care. You want to study the Bible with them. You want to invite them to the services of the church. You want to help them change or modify their behavior so that they can turn and repent. And they just don't care. The Bible here is showing us that we need to care. We need to have an intense desire to have a clearing of our conscience. If we don't care, it's like John 3.18. You lost already. You need to be caring. So often, how do we reach those who are unfaithful or those who are not Christians? They need to care about their condition. They need to have their conscience cleared. The preaching of the gospel will prick the heart. The more influence we can get of the Bible on their heart and life, the more opportunity we'll have to cause their heart to care. It's possible their heart can become seared. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And be beyond our reach. Hebrews chapter 6. But here the conscience in mind has an, a craving, an earnest seeking, an intense desire. We have earnestly sought a conscience reconciled to God. When he says the answer of a good conscience, 
The word translated into English is only part of the story. It is a question or a desire that is finding the solution or the answer. That's why the King James translators put answer there. Baptism's the answer to that request, that longing and pleading of the heart. The thing asked, the demand of a good conscience toward God, the avowal of consecration unto Him. In Arden Gingrich's lexicon, the Greek dictionary defining this word here, epirotema, it has to do with the request and an appeal. An appeal to God for a clear conscience. And they put 1 Peter 3, 21. But also, not only is it an appeal to God. As I say, this word is, is a fascinating word because it's a real deep word. It has a lot of meaning. Not only does it reflect a conscience that is longing for an acceptable place in the sight of God. But it is also a conscience that is willing to make a pledge of loyalty and faithfulness to God. All of that included in that one little word that you see there. According to Arden Gingrich, also a pledge to God proceeding from a clear conscience. If I could just get all of my wretched, wicked past off of my heart and mind, I'd be able to serve God faithfully. If I could just get the conscience that is smiting me from misdeeds of the past, angry words, misdeeds, lying, cheating, stealing, immorality, whatever it is in my past that I have done, if I could get that off of my mind, then I could with a clear conscience serve my God. That's it. The Rotima. The request for a clear conscience. Where does it find its answer? Friends, it finds its answer in baptism. We're up against it because we have a lot of fellows who went to cemetery, excuse me, seminary and got their brains expanded and they're in pulpits across the land saying baptism doesn't save you. Well, you just forget everything I just said then. Forget everything that Peter was talking about if that's the case. I'd rather believe what the Apostle Peter, by the inspiration of God, wrote right here than every fellow that graduated seminary from day one all the way through. Because the Word of God is going to stand the test of time and the doctrines and teachings of men will not. Just because it's popular, we ought not pen knife the Word of God. So here Peter is saying, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now let's think for just a minute back to our type. Where could you be saved in the days of Noah? Well, I could get on Mount Everest. Maybe I'd make it up there. No, you're going to have 15 cubits of water above your head up there. It's going to be kind of difficult for you to breathe. The only place that you could be saved in Noah's day was in the ark. True or false? The only place. In that ark. Not associated with that ark. Not on some little dinghy being pulled along by a rope behind that ark. Not with a life preserver that had been pitched over the side from that ark. But in that ark. That's the only place that you could be saved. Now, if the corresponding antitype to that is baptism, and baptism places you into the church of Christ, Acts 2.47, where then is the only place that you can be saved today? Well, it's in the church of Christ. Not in the church in a generic sense, or not fond of the church, or affiliated with the church, or associated with the church, but in the church. That's type and antitype. Whatever we think about this, if we have to strip away teaching and tradition that's been in our minds across the years, maybe even decades, it's got to go. Because this type and antitype is just as clear as if you got it from the printer tonight. Here it is. 
the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you need to see the type and the antitype, and you'll see the strength of the passage of Scripture. Notice it is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ that baptism has the ability to do that for us. When we are baptized into Christ, we're baptized into His death. John 19, 33 to 35. When through faith in the operation of God who raised Him from the dead, Colossians 2 and 14, or 2 and 12 rather, we are raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. We are raised with Him to newness of life. It is by the resurrection of Christ that we now stand acceptable in the sight of God with a clear conscience. When we are baptized, the Lord adds us to His body, the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Christ has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. Who's got the right to say how it is? Christ alone. That's it. And He has empowered the Apostle Peter to pen these words. And He has made sure through the kind hand of providence that they have been preserved down to this moment. And will be forever. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. So there is your word, Epirotomah. The ark of safety. Noah's ark. Type and antitype to the New Testament. You have the ark of Noah in Noah's day. And the corresponding antitype is the body of Christ. I don't know what picture to put here. I put this one because it shows people make up the body of Christ. Bear with the artist's uh, conception of this with me, if you will, and let me bring out a point. In Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us that Christ is the Savior of the body, that the body is in Christ, and of course Christ is in His body. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 reads, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Where are all the members? They're all in Christ. They're all in one body. Christ is the head of that body, Ephesians 6.23. He is the Savior of His body. How many bodies does Christ have? Does He have more than one? Does He have 2,000? Christ has one body. Sunday night, Jason was filling in for me at Tiftonia, and he preached about Christ's blood is in his body like your blood is in your body. And just as your blood cleanses your body, even so the blood of Christ cleanses the body of Christ, 1 John 1. In order for you to be saved and to remain in a saved state, you must be in the body of Christ. There's some folks today who want to say, well, you know, I don't mind religious, spiritual things, but I don't really want anything to do with the church. I don't like all that organization. I don't like interacting with all those people. The church is the body of Christ. There's not a saved person outside the body of Christ. <clears throat> All are in Christ. A couple of things on this point. The Bible tells us that salvation is in Christ. Where was salvation in Noah's day? Outside the ark or inside the ark? In the ark. Come thou and thy family into the ark. Where is salvation? 2 Timothy 2.10. In Christ. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places are where? In Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. 
Verse 14. So being in Christ means that we're in a saved relationship with God where we enjoy all of those spiritual blessings. Now, friends and brethren, there are three passages of Scripture that tell us how to get into Christ. You'll want to note these. If you're not a member of the Church of Christ tonight, you want to note these because you probably never heard it discussed this way. But you want to note these because he's going to tell you how to get into Christ. <coughs> if salvation was in the ark, you need to know how to get into the ark. You need to know where the door is. If salvation's in the church of Christ, you need to know how to get there. Christ is the door, John 10, 9. And through his word, he's going to tell you how to get into Christ where salvation and all spiritual blessings are. The three passages of Scripture begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. And have been all made to drink into one spirit, whether we be Jew or Greek, whether we be bond or free. Baptized into the body of Christ. The one body of Christ. That's how you get into the body of Christ. Noah was pointing toward that day with his type. Now you've got the corresponding antitype in the church of Christ or the body of Christ. How would you get there? You were baptized into his body. That's why baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh or dirt from off the body, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second verse, Romans 6, 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. How did you get there? You were baptized into Him. Baptized into Christ. Romans 6 and verse 3. The whole 6th chapter of Romans is talking about the subject of baptism. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. As I mentioned a minute ago, we're baptized into his death. The significance of that is that's where he shed his blood. How do you contact that blood? Do you know when a person is baptized and he's in the water, he has heard the gospel, repented of sins, made the good confession, and now he's about to be lowered into a watery grave. Baptism will save that person if he believes that the Lord instructed him to do it, as he does in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Mark 16, 16, for example. He's being baptized, buried with Christ, where Jesus shed his blood. It is in that water. It's just water there. But it is his faith in the operation of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead that the merits of the blood of Christ are applied to the sinful condition of his soul and his sins are washed away. It's strictly stated that way in Acts 22 and 16 concerning Saul of Tarsus. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9 and verse 22. We contact the blood when we're baptized into his death. How do we get into his body? By being baptized into his death. Third passage, Galatians 3 and verse 27. Here the apostle is talking about we are all children of God or children of Abraham by faith in Christ Jesus. And that is an allusion back to the grand promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that all nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his physical descendant, Jesus Christ, ultimately. Now here in verse 27, Paul says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How do you get in the body of Christ? Three passages of Scripture, all of them have this in common, baptized into. Now I just have to do it this way. I find the Lord did it this way. He would not only state something positively, but negatively. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
John 8, 24. If you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. You remember that? Luke 13, verse 3. Except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. states it positively and negatively. Confession of faith. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. He states confession positively and negatively. He does that in regard to baptism in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So tonight I'm telling you that here's what the Bible teaches us on being baptized into Christ. That's how we get into Christ. But there are some who want to tell us that no, you don't get into Christ this way. You get into Christ by praying. I'd really like to talk about that a long time, but I'll give you one verse of Scripture that will nail it down and save us all some time. It's found in 1 Peter 3.12, earlier in this same chapter. And I'm having to talk about it this way because I'll be out somewhere and I'll see a little track and I'll pick up the track and it'll tell me that there are four things to do to be saved. No water in it. I'll read a book by Warren Wiersbe or someone who's a denominational preacher, and they'll say, here's how you're saved. And there's no water in it, no reference to baptism in it. But what they do have in it is, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I accept you as my personal Savior. Come into my life and save me from my sins. I confess to you that I'm a sinner. Did you know that's not in the Bible? Sheila was reminding me the other day when we were studying. She was raising the Baptist church, and we were studying on the phone. Um, you know, that was a, a romantic day for us, was to study the Bible over the phone into the wee hours of the morning. And um, we had agreed that we would say what we stayed out of the Bible and give us the other the opportunity to read verses before and after to make sure it's in context. And I was telling her about there's no other name to be saved other than the name of Christ. And if you don't have a name that's in the Bible, it's not right. And so she quoted me some scripture of her own. I'd forgotten this, but she reminded me of it a few days ago. She said, well, don't you know that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet? I said, let me ask you, do you think that's in the Bible? She said, yes, yeah, in the Bible. I said, honey, that's in Shakespeare. She said, oh, that's right, it is. <laughs> Why would somebody say that? She'd heard that all her life. You can't, let me tell you something. You can't get to heaven on Shakespeare. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. Do you know what long after that she obeyed the gospel of Christ? She learned that she'd been taught some things not in the Bible. When you go to the Bible, well, it's a different picture from what I've been taught and how I've been raised and what I've thought. So there are folks out there who want to tell you the name doesn't make any difference. And what you need to do, baptism doesn't save you. What you need to do is pray for your salvation. God knows everything right. He'll know you're praying. That's the line of reasoning. So you just say, Lord, I'm a sinner and pray and save me. You died to save me. Go ahead and do that. What the Bible teaches in 1 Peter 3.12 is this. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, underline righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers, underline there. Watch this now. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Another way of saying God does not hear the prayer of sinners, John 9 and 31. Or they're an abomination in sight of God, Proverbs 28 and verse 9. And yet that's the general recommendation. You want to be saved? Just get down on your knees in fervent prayer and ask God to come in your life and forgive you and He'll save you right there. He will not. The Bible doesn't teach that. In order for a person to be saved, he's got to go from being a wretched, wicked person, the eyes of the Lord, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to being a righteous person. He's going to have to get up and clean up and be in the body of Christ for the Lord to hear his prayers. And that day forward, the Lord to hear his prayers. 
but not before that. First Peter three twelve to thirteen ought to settle that in everybody's mind, and they ought not be distributing those tracts, handing those tracts out, saying it on the radio and the television. That all you got to do is just accept Jesus and ask Him to come in your life. He's not going to be listening to you because you're a sinner. He'll listen to you when your sins are washed away in His blood. And He's added you to His blood-bought institution, the Church of Christ. That's when you'll be saved. That's when you'll enjoy a right relationship with Him. That's when you'll be considered righteous by God, according to the Bible. So I wanted you to see those three verses of Scripture right there that tell us how to get into Christ. (coughs) Because it also shows us the necessity and the essentiality of baptism. In Revelation 1 and verse 7, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. And they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail, even because of Him. Even so, Amen. The flood of Noah happened. The second coming of Christ is going to happen. Preparations need to be made by being in the right place. That place is the church of Christ. We're not talking about a denomination. You know, I, I know it's so hard. I mean, so, much, so, time, so, so many times people refer to us preachers as pastors. Why? Because that's just what they're used to. Oh, pastor. No. We had a fellow who was um, mail carrier, U.S. United States mail carrier, who would come in when I was at Getwell. Real friendly guy, always up. I don't know how the guy stayed so cheerful all the time. He was always up and always happy about something. He'd say, hey, pastor, how you doing? I'd say, not now. Let me tell you something. I'm not a pastor. I'm a preacher. We have three pastors here. I'm not one of them. I'm a preacher. Oh, okay, all right. Next time he came in the door, hey, pastor, how's it going? I thought, and, and the secretaries would roll their eyes. I said, don't worry, I'll get him. So he came in one day, and I said, he said, hey, pastor, how's it going? And I said, hey, UPS man, how are you? He said, no, 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 you wait just a minute now. I'm USPS. I'm not UPS. I'm USPS. I said, yeah, and I'm not a pastor. I'm a preacher. Oh, I got you now. I got you now. (laughs) They don't think it makes any difference, but it really does. And folks don't think the church you're in makes any difference, but oh, how it does. Marshall Keeble used to talk about, Tony and I were talking about Marshall Keeble earlier and enjoying thinking about him, and Keeble used to say that all the churches that are out there are man-made churches, and they got a mortgage on them. And when the Lord returns, he's going to foreclose on that mortgage because the church of Christ is the only one that's bought and paid for. You know what it's bought and paid for with? The blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you just ask a person in a denomination. doesn't matter what church he is. Are you in the blood-bought church of Christ? Can you show me that in the Bible, that your church is bought and paid for? Well, no, no. The church doesn't save you, they will say. Then you and the church got a mortgage on it. And when the Lord returns, he's going to foreclose on that mortgage and you're going to have to give account of what you're doing in there. If you follow in the commandments and doctrines of men, the tradition you inherited from your mother and father, you are the one that's going to give an account for it. Sometimes people say, well, I couldn't leave the tradition of my parents. I worked in finance with a fellow who's a Jewish man in, in Memphis. And he would ask me questions, and I got to have maybe more in-depth Bible study with that guy than other people I'd worked with. He would say, what do you think about this or that? And I would tell him first, it's what the Bible says about it, Sidney. You need to know what the Bible teaches. Well, what does the Bible say about it? Because he's just going by the Old Testament. I would always bring him verses out of the Old Testament. He was kind of surprised that you would do that. He asked so many questions, interesting questions, and he would always receive graciously the answer that I gave him. And so I told him, I said, Sidney, why don't you come over? Being a Jew, you're off on Sunday. Why don't you come over and just... You've been so curious about what goes on. Just come over and visit with us over at Getwell. 
I said, everybody there knows that I work for you, and they'd be happy to meet you. You'd be granted, you'd be greeted by a friendly group. They know you're a Jewish man. Why don't you come over? You know what he said? He said, if I, he said, Gary, if I was to walk in that church building, my mother and daddy would roll over in their grave. I said, Sidney, I mean this respectfully, but I'd let them roll. I would let them roll before I would meet the Lord in judgment. Now, if you go to the judgment, you're not going to be answering for what your mother and father did, Ezekiel 18.20. You're going to be answering for what you do. We've all lived long enough to know we're responsible for our own actions and thoughts. We get there, we're not going to try to convince Christ, well, you know, my mother and father did that. It's good enough for them. It's good enough for me. Depart, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. I knew you not. In order for us to get there, we're going to have to do what Jesus said. He's the door. If any man will hear him, he'll come in and out. And the Lord is the one who has the ability to shut out the world and leave you in paradise. But if you don't do what he says, he'll shut that door and leave you out there in the world. The Lord is going to return one day. We don't know when, but he is going to return. And we will give an account for whether or not we've obeyed the gospel. You know, being here tonight, we appreciate so much everyone being here. And especially if you're not a member of the church, we appreciate you being here. But you know, every one of us being here, we have a greater degree of responsibility now. Now that we've been here. If we didn't know these things, for example, we have a higher degree of responsibility. On one occasion in Memphis, there's a guy who called himself the Bible Answer Man. Had that put on the side of his car. He's a young black fellow, real knowledgeable in the Bible. And he would come over and we would have study. Bible Answer Man. I really like somebody that loves the Bible, and I always enjoyed talking to him. Well, I had him in my office one day. We spent a couple of hours together, and he believes that the day to worship God on is the Sabbath. And I asked him if he knew what the Old Testament said about that. And I showed him verses like Nehemiah 9 and 30 and Deuteronomy 5 and 3 that told that the Lord gave that law to Israel and that he made known his holy Sabbaths in Mount Sinai. I said, now, if God expected people to worship on the Sabbath during the 2,500 years of the patriarchal period covered in the book of Genesis, you show me one instance of it. I'm not saying they didn't worship on the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. I'm just saying you can't show me a single incidence of it. Don't you think that that is striking? Now, here you're saying that people have always worshipped on the Sabbath, but yet for the first 2,500 years of human history, you can't show a single time that they worshipped on the Sabbath? Because God didn't make known the Sabbath until Mount Sinai with the giving of the law in the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20. And he had never seen that before. And he said, well, I, I didn't know that was there. I hadn't seen that. I said, well, are you ready to become a member of the church now? I said, i got a friend, and he'll be in a Bible study, and when he thinks he's got you pinned down, he'll start singing an invitation song to you. You want me to tune one up right now, brother? You know now that you're in the wrong church. You ready to get out of it? Are you going to do what's right? You know, he just sat in silence for a long time. And then he came with his answer, and he said, No, I'm not. I'm going to stay where I am. I said, Okay. That's your choice. I said, But you know the difference between you right now and you before you came in here? You came in here... An honest man. You were honestly mistaken. You thought the Bible taught what you're out here teaching as the Bible answer man. But when you walk out that door and you don't obey the gospel, 
you will not go out that door an honest man. You'll be telling people something that you know the Bible doesn't teach. And you're going to keep on telling them that anyway. Man, obey the gospel. He wouldn't do it. He did later. He slipped in one Sunday. I saw him slip in the back of the auditorium and sat and listened to the sermon and slipped out. But that was the last time that I saw him. Knowing what we know about the importance and place of baptism tonight, we are in a higher position of responsibility than before we came if we hadn't been baptized into Christ yet. And I'm in sympathy with our souls in that regard. And that's why we plead for men and women to obey the gospel of the Son of God. There are five steps in the gospel plan of salvation. These are steps of faith, Romans 4 and verse 12. I don't hesitate to refer to them as steps because of that. What was Abraham doing when he left Ur of the Chaldees? Was he taking steps? Oh, yes. What did Paul say in Romans 4.12? They're steps of faith. Why? Because God's the one doing the directing. What are these then? God's telling us to do them. They are steps of faith. The first one is hearing. You'll find that the Bible teaches in John 6.44 and 45 that Jesus tells us that no man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. As it is written in the prophets, they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father... Cometh unto me. So the first step of faith we take is hearing. You've done a great job of hearing tonight. As much as we ate down there tonight for supper, so good. I'm surprised you're awake. You've done well. Well, that's the first step we take is hearing the word of God. That's how faith comes. Romans 10 and 17. Then we are to believe the gospel. I've cited this passage before you're hearing tonight on two occasions. And you know it by heart, I hope. I'm sure most of us do. Third, we are taught to repent of sins. We went over this a little bit earlier. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We hear the word of God, we believe it. We believe in Christ as the Son of God. We repent and turn away from our sins, and we confess our faith in Christ. We talked about that earlier also, positively and negatively. Just think of it. If we'll confess Christ before men, he'll confess us before God. Mark 8 and 38, Jesus tells about that. And he tells that whosoever is ashamed of him and of his words... In this sinful and adulterous generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then being baptized into Christ, Mark 16, 16. We talked about that too. Is baptism essential or necessary? Mark 16, 16 declares it. 1 Peter 3, 21 declares and explains it further. Tonight, if you have not obeyed the gospel, this is your opportunity to do that. If you have obeyed the gospel and you need to make your heart and life right, we plead and urge with you to do that. If there's outstanding sin in your life, I'm so glad we live a long love and serve a long-suffering and gracious God who's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. And that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess those sins and turn from them, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. Don't leave here tonight with a clouded mind, with a conscience smiting you. Please don't do that. The help that you need is in Christ and in the church of Christ is the blood-bought body of the Savior. He's inviting you to become a member of it tonight by taking these steps of faith. When you're baptized into Christ, the Lord himself will add you to his church, Acts 2.47. If you're in need of the gospel invitation and the gospel call, we urge you to come now while we stand and sing the hymn. Salute.